The essential salts of animals may be so prepared and preserved that an ingenious man may have the whole Ark of Noah in his own study and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure. And by the like method, from the essential salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whereinto his body has been incinerated. HPPodcraft.com. Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that is the opening inscription uh, for the case of Charles Dexter Ward, a novel by H.P. Lovecraft. And today we're going to start our adventure into the world of, of Charles Dexter Ward. That reader was Matt Foyer. We are glad to have him back. Matt Foyer, who is an uh, actor extraordinaire and star of the Call of Cthulhu film and the upcoming Whisper in Darkness. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and this is the H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. We're glad to be back after a, a couple of weeks off. We took a couple weeks off i was in cyprus you were, you went to alaska i did actually i read this uh in cyprus well i should say reread it next to a pool so not very mood setting but still a great story i i did some reading on my vacation as well up on the train up in the klondike surrounded by mountains of madness <laughs> <laughs> up in alaska it was pretty good but it was a reread for me too because as i mentioned before this is actually the first hp lovecraft uh, bit i've i ever read i really love this book I do too. i'm not gonna lie yeah. and i rewatched the uh the film adaptation the resurrected uh, just yesterday yes the dan o'bannon adaptation which we could talk about a little later yeah 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 <laughs> i like that movie i do too, too. I, I really enjoy that yeah. movie and it's a it's a very good script wise great a- adaptation uh that opening inscription is a quote well it says it's attributed to borellis pierre borell is the guy that actually uh wrote that and he wrote he, he lived okay. from 1620 to 1689 and he was a french physician and chemist and botanist and things like that okay. but cotton mather translated that phrase into english and it's in his magnalia christi americana which was written in 1702 and H.P. Lovecraft had a copy of that, and that's probably where he got the quote from. So he pulled this from Matt. Yeah. Well, it kind of tells us what we're dealing with in this story, raising up animals or, or, or men from their ashes or their remains mm-hmm. through some kind of chemical process or alchemy. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to be happening in the story. It spans a couple of centuries, mm-hmm. but uh, let's go ahead and dig into the first part. A result and a prologue. From a private hospital for the insane near Providence, Rhode Island, There recently disappeared an exceedingly singular person. He bore the name of Charles Dexter Ward and was placed under restraint most reluctantly by the grieving father who had watched his aberration grow from a mere eccentricity to a dark mania involving both a possibility of murderous tendencies and a profound and peculiar change in the apparent contents of his mind. Doctors confessed themselves quite baffled by his case since it presented oddities of a general physiological as well as psychological character. Now, there's an introduction to our titular character, Charles Dexter Ward. And, you know, if it's a case of somebody, that means they got to have some problems, and and these are the problems that he has. He definitely has a pretty serious problem. When they admitted uh, Charles to the insane asylum, he seemed a lot older than he should have been. Yeah. His voice is gone. He can only talk in whispers and raspy and a raspy voice. And there's a the detail they say is that his his tissue was all kind of loosely knit. Yeah. Like his skin and, and tissue were a little like saggy and weird. Yeah, right. 
And he had a, 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 a there's a birthmark that was on him that was gone. Yeah, he's missing a birthmark, although it seems like he acquired another one. Yeah, on his chest, a blackish spot. Yeah. yeah. Psychologically, however, he actually seems almost smarter than he used to be. Mm. Like, he's got a great capacity for knowledge, although however, there's a giant gap in his memory of all modern things seem to be gone. Yes, yes. He's an antiquarian, and so he's really right. obsessed with the past, and he seems to be very knowledgeable about those things, but not about modern day things. Yeah, that's what's odd, is that Charles Dexter Ward loved the past, but once they bring him in the hospital he's actually more concerned with modernity he wants to learn everything he can about what he already should know yeah in this first few paragraphs of the book we also introduce dr willett who's sort of the real main character of the yeah. story in a way he's the ward's family um, physician he's known charles since he was a little boy yeah in fact he delivered him I believe. yeah mm -hmm. and he was the last person with charles before charles escaped yes which is a strange escape. There was a window in his room, but there's a drop of 60 feet from uh -huh. the window. <laughs> so nobody's really sure how he got out yeah. of there. Or that he survived, um, you know, how he survived the drop from the window. And also yeah. when the um, the attendants knocked on the door and the, no, nobody was inside and they finally opened it up and looked in there and the window was open and he was gone. But there was this strange kind of ashy dust in the air, this kind of blue-green dust that, that choked them. Now, Dr. Willett, I would assume everybody would think had some kind of complicity in the escape, but he says he doesn't really know what happened, yeah. and uh, he just seems relieved somehow. And Charles is still at large. He's on He's on the prowl out there in the, yeah. in the wild, wild... <laughs> in, in the wilds of Providence. So the alienists, Yes, we start to get into a little bit of what, you know, what, what, what do people think happened to Charles? I mean, why, why is he acting this way? Why, what's with all the mental and physical changes? The alienists, they think he started losing it between 1919 and 1920, when he was real young, mm -hmm. you know, he was a teenager. He always, as we've said, cared a lot about history and the history of Providence and his family and genealogy and that sort of thing. But his researchers kind of went into the occult. Yeah, and that's when they think he started going point. going a little crazy. And he started searching for the grave of this ancestor. Yes, that Joseph Kerwin. Nobody knew that he was actually related to him because right. Joseph Kerwin was married to this woman and they had a, and she had a girl. But then something happened, and Joseph Kerwin seems to have been erased from history. Right, right. This was sort of a discovery by Charles, and he started investigating this character more. And Dr. Willett thinks it was actually, after this discovery, his researchers went a little crazy, but Charles was still pretty intact. He thinks it was much later that Charles really lost it in about 1928. Yeah. The true madness, he is certain, came with a later change. After the Kerwin portrait and the ancient papers had been unearthed, after a trip to strange foreign places had been made and some terrible invocations chanted under strange and secret circumstances, after certain answers to these invocations had been plainly indicated, and a frantic letter penned under agonizing and inexplicable conditions, after the wave of vampirism and the ominous Patuxet gossip, and after the patient's memory commenced to exclude contemporary images whilst his voice failed, and his physical aspect underwent the subtle modification so many subsequently noticed. So he, he thinks it was only after all of this that Charles went mad. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, wave uh, of vampirism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just throw that in there. Oh, there's just a wave of vampirism. <laughs> well, that's what this, this first, this is the first chapter of the first section. And it really grabs oh, you. Oh, yeah. You know? Heck yeah. It's all about suggestion. Lovecraft doesn't explain anything. No. He just says, Ward found this portrait. There's some really crazy things that happened. Will it thinks that the, all of this is really real wasn't manufactured by Ward mm -hmm. you know Ward really did find this diary and this portrait mm -hmm. and these things belong to Kerwin and you know at the end of this chapter there's a really horrible suggestion where, where Bullet says he actually produced some hideous results himself yeah. using some formulae 
and that's what really tipped him into thinking that there's a lot more going on than just Charles Ward going insane. Yeah, this is a great setup. After us going through the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, which was really hard to keep focused on, I found with this story, uh, it was more of a page turner. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. you just rip right through yeah. it, you know. And it's interesting how we said, um, you know, with Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Lovecraft was just sort of making an experiment in the novel form mm-hmm. so he could get better at it. And this is a better example of a novel. It is. I mean, he really, he learned a lot. He did a much better job with this. Now, this, like, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath was not published in his lifetime, though, right? No, it wasn't. It was published uh, in the 40s, I think, a few years after he was dead. And I don't think that 41. he himself really had a high opinion. Yeah, 41. I don't think he had a real high opinion. No, it wasn't yet. In a letter, he was talking to um, a friend of his and just said that it was kind of when he was older this was like in the in the 30s you know years after he wrote the story and he just thought it was kind of amateurish yeah. but I, I disagree, I disagree with yeah that. I disagree I think it's totally yeah. great and I think Lovecraft in general had a low opinion of his own work really anytime we found a reference of him talking about one of his own stories he barely has anything good to say about yeah. any of his own stuff now in the um, the second chapter of this first section we get to know Charles a bit we meet him in his junior years and when he's at the Mo- uh, Moses Brown school a junior yeah. he's tall he's slim he's blonde and he's awkward mm-hmm. and he likes to walk around a lot. <laughs> he likes to walk around a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he goes on these little adventures. Oh, uh, yes, I know what <laughs> Adventures uh, in antiquity. Oh, he walks boy, around town he? and he looks at all the old houses and the old buildings. And this chapter really digs into all of that stuff. And it's, you know, more of Lovecraft's very detailed uh, picture of what Providence was like. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. Um, There's about four or five, maybe even six paragraphs of just descriptions of buildings. Right. You know, if you're interested in Providence, uh, historical Providence, then you're going to love this. Um, yeah. Um, and remember, not, when I said page know. turning, um, this was the part that I, I wasn't really turning the page here because it just... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it goes on for a long time. And- or you were only turning the page. <laughs> <laughs> Charles lives in this great Georgian mansion uh, atop a hill. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's based on a real, the Halsey house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to go into all the details of all the houses that he talks about. But it just shows, this section shows how obsessive he is about the past. Right. It says this accounts for all the antiquarian lore which had crowded the modern world from his mind. And it, and it illustrates the mental soil upon which fell the seeds that came to such a strange and terrible, terrible fruition. fruition. I thought that was a cool uh, yeah. way to ride it. Now, he, he loved walking around and seeing all these buildings from the past and that sort of thing, but he wasn't really a morbid guy. No, no, no. He, no. he wasn't into, you know, dead things or cemeteries or any of that stuff. He just was into history. Until he discovers this long-lived ancestor right. who had come from Salem in 1692. Mm-hmm. And that's really the start of when his morbidity and fell into that place. That really gets his interest. He begins to really, really research. That would be really exciting to find out that you had a an ancestor, a great, great, great grandfather who people were deliberately trying yeah. to pretend didn't exist. I mean, anybody would go nuts for that. Specifically, I mean, you know, a conspiracy. It seemed like there was a conspiracy going on to, yeah. to erase this man from, from existence. I work for an advertising agency. Mm-hmm. I know on our website it says that we're, you know, filmmakers, but <laughs> we both have jobs. Uh, we're not those, uh, you know, successful kinds of filmmakers. No, no. But the, uh, um, I, we were pitching a, a client that is one of these websites that's genealogical. Mm-hmm. It was, it's really cool. So I signed up for the site as part of the pitch. I wanted to know how the process worked and started pulling, you know, records on my family. And this, this site has a ton of census records and military records. Mm-hmm. And it also links you out to other people's family trees. So you can discover a lot quite quickly. And uh, I don't know anything about the paternal side of my family at all. Uh, my dad was born in 24, but... You know, things didn't go well in his home. My my grandmother had died in the early 30s of tuberculosis, and he didn't get on well with his father. So there's, I just don't know anything about that side of the family. Right. And, you know, suddenly all these names started coming up. I found out that my great-grandfather was named Isaac Newton Pfeiffer, <laughs> and, uh, which is awesome. And, uh, and then his father was named Nimrod Pfeiffer. Oh, nice. Yeah, Nimrod Pfeiffer. 
of Virginia. So I, you know, I always knew that that side of the family came from Germany, but actually not all of it. The paternal side that the Pfeiffer name comes from goes all the way back to colonial Virginia. Wow. And there's several Nimrods in the family. Well, I think that... I, I don't know. I, it was think, a, uh, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm descended from Nimrod. I'm thinking when you and Heather uh, decide to have children, that Nimrod should be at the top of the list of names. It's possible. It's a family yeah. name. It's a family name, <laughs> exactly. Chad. Exactly. But I got so excited about that. I mean, those discoveries are so cool. Yeah. And that's just... I can see why somebody would get... And that, that's above board. Yeah, and that's you know? just a few names. Nobody yeah, tried to names. That's not somebody trying to be erased from existence, which yeah. means that there's something to hide. And if people are trying to hide something, you want to know what it is. Exactly. And that brings us into the second, uh, second chapter or second section of the book. An antecedent and a horror. Joseph Kerwin, as revealed by the rambling legends embodied in what Ward heard and unearthed, was a very astonishing, enigmatic, and obscurely horrible individual. He'd fled from Salem to Providence, that universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting, at the beginning of the great witchcraft panic. Being in fear of accusation because of his solitary ways and queer chemical or alchemical experiments, he was a colorless-looking man of about 30, and was soon found qualified to become a freeman of Providence, thereafter buying a home lot just north of Gregory Dexter's at about the foot of Olney Street. His house was built on Stamper's Hill west of the town street, in what later became Olney Court, and in 1761 he replaced this with a larger one on the same site, which is still standing. Right away, I did the math on that when I was reading, and I was like, 1761, he built a new house? And he came over in 1692? That yeah. means he was like 99 years old well, he was, when he was building the new exactly. house. Exactly, yeah. he was, And that's part of uh, Joseph Kerwin's problems, uh, is that he is extremely long-lived. And I think he tells everybody in town, he's like, well, I have good, you know, I'm from good stock. Yeah. You know, I exercise and I eat right. <laughs> uh-huh. But people, I mean, already they see that he keeps these strange hours, there's strange lights uh-huh. coming out of his house. He's always mixing and boiling chemicals uh-huh. and that sort of thing. And in fact, people in the town go to him for, for medicine. So he would make potions and things for people to help them with their problems. But, you know, sometimes they would work, sometimes they wouldn't. So, you know, obviously. Yeah, it's just snake oil. Yeah, the placebos. He wasn't, you know, just trying to get rid of them, right. put them out of his hair. It says that he aged only five years in 50 years. <laughs> um, it's like Beverly Hills. He also hangs out in graveyards, people notice. That's not a good yeah, thing. Yeah, no, they didn't like that. Um, and not only does he have this townhouse, he also has a farm. Right, out in the Patuxet Valley. Yeah, and it's not just him. He has these uh, two servants, a a husband who was dumb and curiously scarred, and he had a wife with a very repulsive cast of countenance. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny way to say she's ugly. Yeah, she's ugly, and it says probably due to a mixture of Negro blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is American literature, and it wouldn't be complete if it didn't have some kind of racial tension in it, so there you go. There you go. People out at that farm, people don't like that farm also because he gets these huge deliveries of strange things like, at all yeah, odd crazy hours. Crazy bottles, boxes, and, and they all come in through yeah. the rear door. And he keeps too much livestock. I mean, if it's just he and his servants out there, why does he need all of this livestock? Very and, strange. And there's, you know, next to the farm also there's this sort of stone tower, right? Mm-hmm. The Fenners, who are the closest neighbors, they'll hear cries coming from that stone tower all the time. <laughs> There's some weird stuff going on out there. That's really weird and creepy, and you would think people yeah. would raise a bit more of a ruckus if they were hearing people screaming and crying and freaking out. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, "Yeah, what's going on in there?" <laughs> yeah. Now, Kerwin's got some advantages because he is from uh, a family that is well known in New England. I mean, he's of good birth. Yeah. He's really antisocial, but people aren't 
completely I mean, you know, it's not like he's some crazy hermit who showed up out of nowhere. No. He's you know, his family's well known, so he can get away with some eccentricities, yeah, including he, these. You know. Yeah, well, he and he went away. He went overseas, went to school in England, and even went to the Orient. And so he has the speech of a refined Englishman. And there's rumors about people who visited him. There's this Dr. Checkley, the famous wit from Boston, oh, right. who came by and, and says, uh, "Mr. Chuckles, oh, yeah, I'd like, like to meet this guy, Mr. Chuckles." <laughs> well, Dr. Checkley, he's a real guy, Dr. Checkley. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, he was an advocate of the Church of England. You know, there was a lot of re- religious intolerance at the time, actually, because of the puritanical way was supposed to be the only way he. Rep- Represented the Church of England, and mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, I don't know too much about him, but he um, he's supposed to be a very funny guy, and he, you know, he's a very good speaker, and I think he went on trial actually for defending religious tolerance huh. in Boston uh, later in life. So yeah, there's a little um, call out to actual history. To history, yeah, yeah. And then this guy John Merritt, who I don't know if he's real or not, he he's an elderly English gentleman. He shows up now. Kerwin actually digs this guy because he's very educated. And uh, he, he shows up to Kerwin. He's like, hey, I hear you have the best library in Providence. I'd like to get a look at some of your books. Mm-hmm. And Kerwin's like, sure, let's go out to the farm and I'll show them to yeah. you. And, uh, and then you have one of those great paragraphs where he just lists off evil tomes. Yeah, and, lots of – well, I mean it doesn't start off too evil. Just some kind of weird books. He has um, Hermes Trismegatus. Hermes Trismegatus, the writer, he was like a hermetic sorcerer. Okay. When you talk about hermetic magic, it's this guy. Her- and that's a real book. Mm. They have English tr- translations and things like that. So there's all these real okay. books until, of course, it comes to a book which is yeah. uh, conspicuously labeled Kwanun e Islam, yeah. which he finds out later is actually the Necronomicon. Well, he finds out immediately. I mean, yeah. he like takes it down. He opens it up and he's like, oh, this is the Necronomicon. I just imagine that Kerwin made up a really bad cover for the book made out of a paper bag and just wrote a different <laughs> like name Like in high school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in that paragraph where he talks about the Necronomicon, yeah. uh, there's a little reference there. Yeah, he talks about about the Necronomicon was spoken of years previously after the exposure of nameless rites at a strange little fishing village in Kingsport. That's the festival. That's, that's yeah, it's from the festival. Right. But this is obviously predates the festival because the festival mm-hmm. was I right. think that was in the 1920s that the story oh, was oh yeah set. good call and this yeah. is in the but 1700s. that had been happening for exactly centuries, yeah so, so he's yeah. again Lovecraft's kind of tying in his mythology now Mr. Merritt is most disturbed by a copy of Borellus that he finds and it's got a passage in it that's underlined and underlined and underlined and it's that passage that we heard at the beginning yes. of the show about creating your own Noah's Ark and your study I don't know why anybody would want to do that, but <laughs> that's pretty funny. But, you know, it's it's this theory that you can raise from remains or dust an actual person. Yeah. Now, the sailors that work for Kerwin, I mean, they're, they're the ones that talk the most shit, honestly. Yeah. And those sailors that work for him, they disappear in kind of alarming numbers. Too. Yeah, yeah. He, he has a quick turnaround for his sailors for some reason, and people never see them again. But he pays well. Uh, the talk really gets going, though, when there's these two regiments of soldiers who come through town they're stationed in providence on their way to uh you know louisiana or new france as they called it then and uh they, a bunch of those soldiers disappear they're just gone and people that saw Kerwin speaking with them so they sort of think what yeah what did he do you know uh-huh. <laughs> but you know another thing he's got in his favors like most evil people he's also really rich yep. and uh, he's great at business yeah he's he's <laughs> got know, a monopoly so. on the whole saltpeter black pepper and cinnamon trade so you know he's a powerful guy and so whatever wackiness or strange things that are afoot he's able to either bribe people or pay them off and he also you know he does all these sort of civic deeds he contributes charities and builds buildings there was a colony house that burnt down and he was the one that uh, helped rebuild it you know he did a lot of a lot of community stuff by the mid 1700s he seems to realize that he probably should be doing more of that and put on a better public face Mm -hmm. because people are just talking too much that gets us into the next section the sight of this strange pallid man 
hardly middle-aged in aspect, yet certainly not less than a full century old, seeking at last to emerge from a cloud of fright and detestation too vague to pin down or analyze, was at once a pathetic, a dramatic, and a contemptible thing. I like that sentence a lot. It's pretty crazy if you think about it. Like, people are really turning a blind eye to the fact that this dude is over 100 years old and he looks like he's in his mid-30s. Right. Which is, yeah. which is pretty crazy, especially in a really, it's really, crazy. A really um, superstitious period of history. But since he's got so much money, he's able to really mostly gloss things over. Uh, sailors stop disappearing at around right. this time, but he does start to import large amounts of of slaves. Right. And and he he stops making his graveyard appearances too. Uh, that was another thing with right. Kerwin. He would often be seen, you know, wandering around graveyards, but you know, he stopped doing yeah. that entirely. Well, here's the thing. He needs a lot of money to do whatever it is he's doing out there in that farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And that money comes to him through his shipping trade, so he he sort of has to stay stay put and keep running his business. Yeah. Even though people are suspicious. So he's got to do kind of really crazy things to keep people from getting in his business. And the people that are working for him, they don't like him, but he blackmails them into staying yeah. with him. The way that he does that is by knowing things about them that yeah. seem like impossible for him to know. You know, he's got secrets from long dead people that he's using to blackmail. So how's he getting those things? Who knows? Who knows? Well, at one point he thinks, you know what I need to do is I need a wife. Yep. Then maybe people will give me a break. Right. Now, he might have needed the wife for more reason than one. You know, oh, right. It's, yes. It's a little more than It might be than just, more than uh, just uh, trying to keep up appearances. But at this point in the story, he just says he needs a wife. There's this guy. His name's Duddy. Tillinghast, and he is a captain that works for Kerwin, and he's got a daughter named Eliza, who is uh, just 18 years old. Duddy says, of course you can marry my daughter, but she's already engaged to this other guy, Ezra Whedon, and her father just has the final say, so her engagement is broken off, and she marries Kerwin. Yeah, and Kerwin, I, you know, he blackmailed this man. This was a forced marriage in a way. He, he's got some dirt on him. Yeah. The man doesn't have a lot of fortune, so he doesn't have a good uh, dowry for his daughter or anything no. like that. Kerwin really is victimizing his family to get the young girl. Her fiance, Ezra Whedon, who was the second mate on a, a ship called the Enterprise. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the Enterprise gets mentioned a few times. Yeah, it's, it does. It does. Kerwin makes a big mistake because Ezra is really ticked about this yeah. and, and holds a grudge, and he has made an enemy. A serious enemy yes. in this Ezra. Well, the marriage happens, and people do kind of chill out a bit. Kerwin, um, he's out at the farm all the time, but he's real good to the wife. He seems to defer to her and treat her well. Mm-hmm. They have a child, Anne, who's born in 1765. Mm-hmm. A girl. And uh, around that time, too, he sits for a portrait by Cosmo Alexander, who is a real guy. Who is a real painter. Real painter. Yes, yes. And we should put a, a link up to some of Cosmo's uh, stuff on the on the site just to show, show people, you know, get, get an idea of what the painting might have looked like. He was a portraiture guy, so he's got all of these colonial-ish right. looking folks. It'd be like a little girl and a lamb or whatever. He's very good. <laughs> but he didn't paint it uh, like on a canvas. He painted it on a wall panel in, in the library of the house yeah, on Olden Court. Library. Yeah. Now, around this time, Kerwin is, he seems very excited about something. Like, he's really whatever work he's doing out at that farm he's 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 pretty happy about it Mm -hmm. and um he's getting involved in politics and civics and doing Uh everything he can you know people are actually sort of on his actually kind of like Kerwin a little bit at this point but ezra that jilted fiance he doesn't like it and he's out there watching he knows that the guy's a jerk i mean the stuff that he was doing he helped found a bookstore a bookshop in in the town right he helped the newspaper that was struggling at the time uh, Kerwin did, you know, did all this stuff. Uh, he was helping Governor Hopkins get elected. You know, yeah. so he was he's definitely become a real serious player. But Ezra's not falling for it. And as much as he's getting involved in those civics things, he's also, though, you know, he's spending more time out at the farm. Mm-hmm. And um, he's even leaving his business up to his captains. Mm-hmm. Ezra keeps watching and he notices that Kerwin's not importing slaves anymore. Mm-hmm. 
used to bring these slaves in and keep them all in that sort of stone tower. But he is bringing in these long boxes mm-hmm. instead that he's taking out to the same place. Long. I'm not talking about comic books either. These no. are, you know, coffins. They're coffins. You know, he can get away with a lot of this because smuggling was sort of commonplace at this time in the you know the 1760s. Considering the you know all of the different taxation issues, it was almost patriotic to be smuggling all sorts of different things into the colony. So because of the political environment, he's able to get away with a, a lot of mm-hmm. it. Now Ezra, he, you know, he's got a job, he's got a sale, so he gets another one of his drinking buddies, Elazar Smith. Mm-hmm. To help him out in his surveillance of Kerwin. And they decide, let's not make a stink about anything yet, because we don't want to warn him off. No. But let's just keep collecting evidence. And, and one thing that they mentioned there is that they really actually believe that uh, there's the farmhouse and there's that tower, but there's there's actually some catacombs beneath the farm where they, they hear all sorts of different voices coming from. Whedon had many verbatim reports of overheard scraps in his notebook for English, French, and Spanish, which he knew were frequently used. But of these, nothing has survived. He did, however, say that besides a few ghoulish dialogues in which the past affairs of Providence families were concerned, most of the questions and answers he could understand were historical or scientific, occasionally pertaining to very remote places and ages. Once, for example, an alternately raging and sullen figure was questioned in French about the Black Prince's massacre at Limoges in 1370, as if there was some hidden reason which he ought to know. Kerwin asked the prisoner, if prisoner it were, whether the order to slay was given because of the sign of the goat found on the altar in the ancient Roman crypt beneath the cathedral, or whether the dark man of the Orkvien coven had spoken the three words. Failing to obtain replies, the Inquisitor had seemingly resorted to extreme means, for there was a terrific shriek, followed by silence, and muttering, and a bumping sound. Very yeah, creepy. creepy stop. He can't see anything that's going on. This is just things that have been heard. Well, the one time he does see a shadow in, uh, against one of the windows once, during one of these interrogations, and it gives him such a start that the servants hear him out there, Ezra, and they right. sick the dogs on him. <laughs> He gets bitten up by the dogs, yeah. and then those conversations he doesn't hear out of the farmhouse anymore. They go underground. Yep. And and people other than Ezra have heard voices coming out of the ground. Out of the ground, no yeah, faint like cries that. just yeah. out of solid earth, you know, far away from any structures and yeah. stuff. It's totally crazy. So really, he's right. pretty sure that there are these uh, these catacombs. Something is underneath. He doesn't know if they were built or if they're natural or, or what, but he, he, there has to be something under there. And then finally, there's some heavy rains in uh, 1769, and part of the riverbank collapsed from the flooding, and it showed that there was a cavern, but the cavern had caved in. He was gonna, yeah. he was gonna try and dig in there and see if they could clear that away and get inside the caverns, but it never happened. But one thing that is significant is that some human and animal bones yes, get washed out. Exactly. Now they say that there's a lot of Indian burial grounds and things like that around there, so it's not too uncommon that human remains pop up. But Whedon and Smith know what's up now. In 1770, there's another curious incident when uh, customs agents inspect the Spanish ship that's coming from Egypt to Providence, and they find that it's full of mummies, mummies. Egyptian mummies, Egyptian mummies. <laughs> yeah, you know, and everybody knows like who else is shipping mummies into Providence. But he tries to kind of play it off. It says, as if conscious of this natural belief. Kerwin took care to speak casually on several occasions of the chemical value of the balsams found in mummies, thinking perhaps that he might make the affair seem less unnatural, yet stopping just short of admitting his participation. That is my favorite part of this whole section. What is he? 
How is he bringing it up? I see you have a bad case of acne. You know, if you rub a little mummy on that, that would really be helpful. <laughs> a little mummy on your face takes care of that. Yeah, get a little mummy. You know, if, I'm, if I have a little indigestion, I'm not feeling well, I do some mummy tea. I make a little mummy tea. A little bit of mummy tea. <laughs> it'll, it'll calm your tummy right down. You'll feel much better. Yep. I say, have a this is what I say, mummy for the tummy. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. He's, you know, he's, he's a genius in so many ways, but I just imagine he was, Shit, everybody's going to know about my mummies being important. <laughs> How can I bring this up casually? <laughs> We talked about the animal bones and the human bones, but in the spring, people are seeing some other strange things in the river. Of course, the Patuxet is a long river which winds through many settled regions abounding in graveyards. And of course, the spring rains had been very heavy. But the fisher folk about the bridge did not like the wild way that one of the things stared as it shot down to the still water below, or the way that another half cried out although its condition had greatly departed from that of objects which normally cry out. So little half-creature things that are still uh-huh. unconscious are floating yeah. in the river. So 1770 hits, and uh, Ezra Whedon and his buddy, they decide, we got to tell some folks what's mm-hmm. up. And we've got enough data. So they get a hold of uh, Captain Matthewson, mm-hmm. who is the captain of the Enterprise. Yep. <laughs> Pre, pre-Pike, pre-Archer. All the yep. He says, all right. I dig what you're saying. I always had suspicions about this guy, too. I'm going to go out and I'm going to figure out who the right people are to talk to. So Matthewson, he picks his confidence from among some of the best minds in Providence. Yeah, this is kind of the, the, the Magnificent Seven part, sort of, you know, where they yeah. where they, he kind of goes around and finds all these really badass guys. Like, first, Dr. Benjamin West, who had this pamphlet on, on Venus. He's a scholar. He knows all this stuff. And Reverend James Manning, president of the college. Ex-Governor Stephen Hopkins, who's a member of the Philosophical Society. So he's not only a governor, he's really, in a, you know, philosophy. He's really smart and... John Carter, publisher of the Gazette. Don't forget about the four Brown brothers, John, Joseph, Nicholas, Moses. (laughs) Yeah, I love it, man. He assembles a posse of uh, learned men. Or it reminds me of Dracula a little bit. There's the aged, mystical villain, and then there's this sort of posse of of doctors and scholars who have to get together to try and defeat him. They decide the best way to go is to put together a little private raiding party. We'll get this party together. We'll go out to the farm. We'll confront Kerwin. If it just turns out that he's schizophrenic and he's in there babbling to himself, we'll put him in a hospital or whatever. If it turns out to be something else, we'll deal with it. While these serious steps were under discussion, there occurred in the town an incident so terrible and inexplicable that for a time, little else was mentioned for miles around. In the middle of a moonlit January night with heavy snow underfoot, there resounded over the river and up the hill a shocking series of cries which brought sleepy heads to every window. And people around Waybosset Point saw a great white thing plunging frantically along the badly cleared space in front of the Turk's head. There was a baying of dogs in the distance, but this subsided as soon as the clamor of the awakened town became audible. Parties of men with lanterns and muskets hurried out to see what was happening. But nothing rewarded the search. The next morning, however, A giant, muscular body, stark naked, was found on the jams of ice around the southern piers of the Great Bridge, where the long docks stretched out beside Abbott's distill house. And the identity of this object became a theme for endless speculation and whispering. It was not so much the younger as the older folk who whispered, for only in the patriarchs did that rigid face with horror-bulging eyes strike any chord of memory. 
They, shaking as they did so, exchanged furtive murmurs of wonder and fear, for in those stiff, hideous features lay a resemblance so marvelous as to be almost an identity. And that identity was with a man who had died full 50 years before. Whoa. Yeah, so this is like Reanimator, where the experiments are getting away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this this dude, naked dude, ran out in the snow. I mean, they found his body out on a on an ice float. Must not have been Pretty a pleasant creepy. yeah, a pleasant end to that guy. And uh, the tracks, you know, Ezra checks it out, and the tracks go to Kerwin's Back to Kerwin's farm. farm. And the body is identified by some folks. Yep, actually. they find out that it is the long-dead blacksmith Daniel Green. Whose great-grandson works for Kerwin. Exactly. And when they go and they check it out, they find out that Daniel Green's coffin is his grave. His grave is, is empty. empty. Yep. Not there. At this point, the posse, they start intercepting Kerwin's mail. Yeah, they want to know what the heck's going on. And the first letter they get from him is uh, this letter from uh, Jedediah Orn of Salem. And it seems from this letter that Jedediah and Kerwin are sort of sharing info mm-hmm. about their experiments. One, one interesting sentence in there, it says, I say unto you again. Do not call up any that you cannot put down. By the which I mean, any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. A little warning in there that's going to come into... Uh... Yeah, it's probably probably going to come to fruition at some point in the story. Yeah. <laughs> and Jedediah also says, hey, by the way, when you write me back, don't call me Simon. Call me Jedediah, because I came back as my own son. He's <laughs> really clear about it. Jedediah has a better plan than uh, than Kerwin. Yeah, exactly. He's actually pretends to be a different person so that people don't think it's weird that yeah. he's like 100 years old. Yeah, exactly. He goes, oh, no, that was my dad. They're like, yeah. wow, you look just like your dad. Yeah, I do, don't I? Isn't that neat? <laughs> and they intercept another letter from Philadelphia, and it's similar. It seems to be complaining about somebody who's trying to call up stuff from imperfect remains. Yeah, he doesn't have all of all it. Yeah. problems. And then uh, they intercept a third letter that's in an ancient alphabet they can't even read. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. But in the future, when Charles, Charles Dexter Ward, is able to find these letters, remember, we're, mm-hmm. we're going through this with Charles. His research has brought all this stuff to light. That's how we're, we're getting to all light, this information. Right, yeah. Charles takes it and finds out that it is an Aramaic or Abyssinian. Abyssinian. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. It's, uh, no, people shouldn't be writing yeah, letters. Yeah, but that's the alphabet. But nobody recognizes yeah. any of the words. And here's a good place for us to maybe come to a conclusion for this segment. But Kerwin, you know, despite all the precautions he's taken, he kind of knows there's something in the wind. Yeah, he smells it. He thinks that something's going on. And one night, the Fenners, his neighbors, they... They see this light shooting into the sky from his concrete tower. Yeah, He has an uh, aperture in the roof of the tower, and uh, a big beam of light shoots out of it, which is pretty crazy in the 1700s to have a giant beam of light shooting out of a building. Right. (laughs) So he's making some plans of his own in advance of a confrontation that he believes is going to happen, in which we will discuss on our next next, episode. Our next episode, which will be part two of The Case of Charles Sexton Ward. I want to thank Matt Foyer for doing such a wonderful job. Yeah, he's great, and we're going to have him for the duration of our coverage of the yes, story. Yes, he will be reading for us. There's so much cool stuff in here, man. I thought we were going to get through more in this episode, but no. we're running short on yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. we're going to have to save it. We're going to save it because uh, it's, okay. it's it's really exciting and I don't want to skip over it. So in our next episode, we'll talk about that big uh, battle royale. One last thing I wanted to mention briefly, this coming Saturday, September 11th, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival will be coming to Los Angeles. 
to the Warner Grand Theater in San Pedro. I'm going to head out there to support The Call of Cthulhu, which is showing in the evening before screening of Reanimator, which I believe Stuart Gordon is coming to introduce as well. Uh, Screenings start at 2 p.m. They're showing six of the best movies that have played at the original festival in Portland over the last 14 years that festival has been going on. So if you're in the area, come by, say hello. Uh, I'd love to meet you. We'll put a link up to the the official uh, film festival site in the show notes. Hope to see you there. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.